Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ahau. Later in the show, we discover that the chemical element neon is about much more than just neon signs. But first, we regularly have stories on the program about being predator-free and what it takes to get rid of predators on, say, the Fiordland Islands that we featured a couple of weeks back. But getting rid of the predators is actually just the beginning. To keep our native wildlife safe, we need to keep the islands free of pests. The baddies, unfortunately, are very good at reinvading and re-establishing. A vital tool in this ongoing island biosecurity turns out to have four legs and an exceptional nose. I got a chance to meet one of these predator dogs recently on Whenua Hau, where I was recording for the Kākāpō Files podcast. I'm Sandy King, and I'm a conservation dog handler. And my partner here is a Jack Russell Fox Terrier cross named Gadget. Gadget is wearing an extremely bright little coat. She is. It identifies her as a working dog. It's got Conservation Dogs New Zealand on it. It's a signal to her when she's wearing her jacket that she's in work mode, but it also lets people know that she isn't just any old dog out in a national park or a place where she shouldn't be. She's actually a dog with a job. And she's on a nature reserve on Whenuaho Codfish Island. So what are you two doing here? We're looking for rats or mice. Here we're carrying out what you might call routine surveillance. So Whenuaho is currently pest-free, certainly, we hope, rodent-free, and it's our job to make sure it stays that way. So I think twice a year a dog, a rodent detection dog, is sent out here and just has a good sniff around in high-risk areas, particularly around where people are, around the hut and all the human activity, habitation, but also areas of coastline adjacent to where boats might be mooring. So you're starting here at the hut, and that's obviously a risk because people come and go from it all the time with lots of bags. Yep, bags. Um, When we arrived, all the bags were checked in the hut, and Gadget gave them a bit of a sniff over as well when they were opened. So they got the all clear. Where the human activity is, is the place of highest risk. And rats and mice just tend to gravitate towards where people are too. So if someone came ashore somewhere else, it might end up here. Because there's food here, potentially some nice warm places to sleep. Yes, quite often I think they're looking for a place to nest rather than food. Um, People have found them in places that they're totally surprised nesting on the foredeck of a fishing boat. There's no food there, but there's a nice cosy place to nest when they chew up a coil of rope and just burrow down into it. And that's what they're looking for as much as the food. Okay, well I'll tag along with you and see what this job entails. Sure. Gadget leads the way down the path. 
a number of little huts and outhouses around the Whenuahau hut. And Sandy's going to check all of those. So what's the advantage of a dog over us, Sandy? They can smell things. Their sense of smell is many times, um, I'm not sure how many times, millions, tens of thousands of times better than ours. So whereas we can see things, like maybe rodent chewing or droppings, the dog will pick up things that we can't see, just through the scent, their ability to smell. Come. Gadget, come. Good girl. So nothing interesting in there, which is good, that's what we want to find. How do you keep it interested if you're not finding anything? Um, Every now and then I bring some um, training scent I guess with us. So I've got with me on the island here a piece of dried rat fur and some containers, one of which has fresh, relatively fresh rat poo in it. I'll play games with her. I might hide the rat fur or I might just sit her down with three containers in front of her. One of them has got rat droppings in it and the other two have got nothing. She has to point out the one with the rat droppings and then we switch them around and she's got to point it out each time she points out the right one, she gets a wee reward. So it's a game. And she's looking at me now like, why are you standing here? Because there's nothing and I'm bored. <laughs> OK, you better lead on then. So the generator shed, you might think there's nothing here for a rat, but when the generator's been running, it's warm. And that in itself is an attractant. Now, as we're walking around, there's lots of trap boxes as well and traps, so they've, they've actually got a, a perpetual line of defence here. Yeah, that's... Right, um, one of the disadvantages of a dog is that she's only working, I guess for an instant, as she passes a particular site, whereas a trap on site is working 24-7. And so the dog is a very useful tool. It's a tool that can do things that a lot of the other tools can't, but it's not the only tool. Um, We need a combination of traps and tracking tunnels, um, human eyes and vigilance, and the dog's nose to give the place a really... It's thorough going over and ensure that if anything does arrive, we detect it at the soonest possible time. So you're constantly watching what she's doing. Her behaviour tells you a lot? Yeah, her behaviour tells me whether she's onto one of her target scents, which is either rats or mice, or in a new area like this. She's been here before, but it's still relatively fresh and new today. So... She checks out scents, and she's allowed to do that. It's her job to investigate smells. So she's allowed to check out new smells, but it's what she does afterwards that tells me whether or not it's a rat or a mouse or just something interesting. How old is she? She's six and a half. And when did she start her working career? Probably at just over a year old. Um, She had to go through a certification process and... Part of that is, I guess, an interim certification, which is a bit like getting your learner's driver's licence. So once she got that at just over a year old, she was able to come out and work with me in places with restrictions. She wouldn't have been allowed to come here, for example, but she could go to other places and start working and learning how to do her job properly. And then when she was just over 18 months old, she got her full certification. So like getting your full driver's licence and losing all those restrictions... She's just looking around now, or sniffing around. Smell. She's not hunting anything in particular. She's just investigating. And I think it's good to familiarise her with the smells of the island in general. 
And there's a lot of bird species here that she doesn't encounter in her day-to-day life. So just recognising those, thinking, ah, it's one of those, but we're not interested, is part of the job. Because it's such a smell-driven world, it's completely different, their world, to ours. It must be, yeah. And they must wonder sometimes why on earth we can't detect something which is like an enormous flashing beacon to them. Um, rat scent in a room must just be overwhelming to a dog and yet we can't detect it at all often. Yeah, so she's not really doing much here. We'll go back out along the beachfront or towards the helicopter pad. So we're out on the helipad. This is where we arrived today with the helicopter. So again, I suppose another really obvious place that something might arrive on the island. Yeah, if something had jumped out of the helicopter, it could still be around in this area. So that's why we check sites like this, which are the, the arrival points there for people in their gear and potentially any stowaways. Where else could rats come ashore? They could come from boats, I suppose. Would they possibly make it from Stuart Island? It seems really unlikely that they would make it from Stewart Island. It's well beyond their known swimming range, but I think with rats in particular, you should never say they can't or they won't because they can and they will. Assisted by, say, floating on seaweed or logs, they could perhaps get here, but there's some quite good currents that go between Stewart Island and Whenuahoe, so it seems really unlikely um, more likely that they would come from a boat that's moored close in here. Has Whenuaho had any rodent scares? I believe there's been two that I'm aware of. Um, one, I think a rat was actually caught in one of the traps um, after the rats had been cleared from it. And another one just a couple of years ago where someone found some really unusual droppings. People thought they might have been a rodent, but it turned out to be a kiruru. But it was a really good thing because it made people wake up and, I guess, have a practice run through the incursion response. Yeah, so it just heightens your state of readiness, I guess. Well, Gadget's not looking particularly interested in the helipad? No, not at all. She's looking around, just taking in the scenery and the, the sounds, the smells, the sights of where she is. But I might just walk her down onto the beach, along the beachfront a little bit, and just and around in this general area and then maybe back to the hut and up the track 50, 100 metres or so. How many rodent dogs are there in New Zealand? I'm not 100% sure but I think around about 20 in the conservation dog programme um, give or take a few. So yeah. she's a Jack Russell, what other kinds of dogs make good rodent dogs? It's one of those cases where they're not exactly sure what she is, but they believe she's a Jack Russell Foxy West Highland cross. Terrier breeds generally make good rodent dogs because they're bred for it, so quite a few in the programme are Border Terrier, Jack Russell or Fox Terrier crosses. At the very beginning I forgot to mention that not only is she wearing her bright little conservation dog jacket, she's also wearing a muzzle. Why is that? She has to wear it as part of, I guess, the conditions of her certification when she's working... In a place like Whenuaho, which is a nature reserve, or on any public conservation land, and where there are a lot of threatened or endangered species, so protected wildlife, really. And even though she's trained not to touch things, I mean, I think I'm 99.99% sure that if I took the muzzle off, she wouldn't go on a killing rampage. 
but she's still a dog and there is that tiny, tiny chance that something might happen. So it's just an added precaution. And I have to say, you're extremely well coordinated with your dog there, Sandy, with your jacket as well. (laughs) Yes, yes, that is also part of the conditions that I'm wearing this bright orange vest with dog handler emblazoned across the back and that helps people identify me, I guess, as working and that we're, we're a team. It's probably not so much of a, an issue here on Whenua Ho, which is a closed island, but I know you do a lot of work on Elver Island at Stewart Island too, and that's a, a popular visitor site, so doubtless there you're working with lots of tourists around. Yeah, and it's a place where you're not allowed to take a dog normally, so I think it's pretty important that we show ourselves as being there officially with a job to do. Um, we have actually been reported several times people have seen her footprints on the beach and call into Doc to say there's been a dog on Olva, but they generally they know we're out there, so they can say, are the footprints small? And if they are, then it's OK. It's probably Gadget. Good on them, though. It's a... Yeah, it's really good that people are vigilant enough to report that. And is there an advantage to having a small dog doing it? Yes, there's advantages and disadvantages. Um, the advantages are the food bills down. When you're in a place like this where I have to pick up the poop, there's not quite so much of that. And she's very easy to transport. You know, she sits on my lap in the helicopter or a plane or anything, really. And if there's places that we travel, particularly around the coast and rocks, there's often sections that are quite hard for a dog to traverse. So she's really easy just to lift up you know, and put up ahead of me if it's really steep track, for example, and she can't jump. Um, some of the ones in Fiordland are a bit like that. There's sections where you have to lift the dog up so that they can get up, and while you can climb using your hands, and the dogs can't. And if I have to carry her, she's not too difficult to get into a backpack. Um, getting her on and off boats onto wharves, there, some of the times it's a long way down and you have to climb down over tyres and fenders where the, I can just put her in a little bag and pass her down and she's light enough so that it's really easy for me to do if she was a 30 kilo Labrador I think I'd be really struggling So among the things you've had to train her then is that just ability to relax and let herself be lifted and carried if necessary Yeah, um, and by other people by strangers, so I started when she was just a little pup, I'd pick her up and hold her in the air above my head and walk around the house with her like that and get other people to do the same thing or put her in a shopping bag and just pass it from person to person so that she learned to feel comfortable with it. So how did you train her? I trained her to indicate for rats and mice by playing with dead ones that I had caught in my traps around home. Um, Just tie a dead rat to a piece of string and drag it along and terriers and terrier pups just want to chase, or she did anyway. She wanted to chase it and catch it, so it's just a big game to her. Um, Start off like that and then start hiding it, and so she's trying to dig to get it, and then I encourage her and reward her for that. The ultimate reward is to get the rat there, but that's not always possible. She can't can't catch her target species with the muzzle on. It's not part of the job is to catch them. She's a detection dog, so sometimes I will substitute a catch with a ball, yeah, she, that's her most favourite thing in the world, almost, is a ball. And, but she's also really keen on food, so a, a food reward's a really good thing, and I can actually slip a little treat in between the bars of her muzzle. And the flip side of that is how do you teach her to ignore everything else? 
by ignoring them myself largely. So there's all sorts of ways of training dogs to ignore things, but I like to do it by, I guess, habituation. Um, there were some say, quite seabirdy places not far from where I live, so I would take her and just go and sit there in amongst a penguin or a titi colony and eat my lunch, and she would have to sit there and be bored as well. So I think to teach them off or train them off the scents, you have to expose them to those scents and then just be really disinterested. Um, give them a bit of a no, you know, teach them what the word no means to start and then give them a no if they go to investigate that scent too closely and just go away. So how many different islands have you worked on, do you reckon? Do you keep a tally? Not off the top of my head, but we have actually chalked up a few. Um, she's been as far south as Campbell Island and I guess as far north as Rangitoto yeah, and out to Great Mercury and east to the Chatham Islands. Yeah. So it's a job that gets you around? It is. It's, um, having the dog is a ticket to places that I probably wouldn't be invited to go otherwise. You're here for a few days checking out as much as you can of the island? Yeah, we're here for a week and we will cover as much of the island as we can in that time using the track network but also doing a bit of bush bashing. Uh, we'll try and cover sites where I know boats often moor and get into the coast and the bush adjacent to those sites. Um, but yeah, just generally have a good look around, a good sniff around in Gadget's case. Thanks, Sandy. That was conservation dog handler Sandy King, and she was on the beat on Whenua Ho with her trusty sidekick, Gadget, the rodent detector dog. After their week of sleuthing, Sandy was very happy to confirm that the island remains delightfully rat-free. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, he hōtaka e pānaki a papatua nuku tangaroa me rangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now it's time to get chemical with Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology in another episode of the Elemental podcast. This one features neon, and instantly, neon lights come to mind. Neon from the Greek neos, meaning new. So, chemical symbol NE, atomic number 10, which puts it at the very top right-hand corner of the periodic table. It's the first P-block noble gas, and it's the first element with a true octet of electrons. So it's feeling quite satisfied. It's very satisfied, very, very happy. Uh, That makes it a noble gas, in fact, which means that it should be unreactive, and it most definitely is. There are no known compounds of neon. Okay, where do we find it on Earth? Uh, it's actually uh, found in the air, where it is quite rare. Ouch. Getting poetic there. I know. See how many uh, other rhymes you can throw in. No, no, you don't want that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, rarity, it's only found around about 18 parts per million in the atmosphere, which is surprising because when you go to the entire universe, it's in fact the fifth most abundant element in the universe. So the reason that there's not a heck of a lot of it on Earth is because it's less dense than air, and so therefore it just goes up into the vacuum of space. That's like helium, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. Helium also uh, we are suffering shortages of. As I say, it's a noble gas, and it was first isolated in 1898 by Ramsey and Travers. Certainly Ramsey we have talked about before because he was the discoverer of all the other noble gases except radon. So they got this from the fractionation of liquid air. So they were sort of distilling 
liquid air in parts. And one part they found that when they put an electrical discharge through this new gas that they found, they were amazed by the fact that they had a brilliant red glow. And um, anybody who's ever seen a real neon light glow will, will know what it's like. It is, in fact, the most intense of all of the noble gases. And Travers later wrote, and I quote, The blaze of crimson light from the tube told its own story and was a sight to dwell upon and never forget. Very poetic, that. (laughs) (laughs) Where does the name neon come from? Okay, so funnily enough, the name was suggested apparently by Ramsey's 13-year-old son, but the name he wanted was Novum, which is the Latin for new, but Ramsey went with the Greek derived from neos, Greek for new, and uh, he got neon. That's pretty unsporting, though. Yeah, a nice little anecdote, though. And as you've also alluded to, the glow gives its name to neon lights or neon signs, and they were first popularised, in fact, in 1910 by a Frenchman by the name of Georges Claude. And that is how the company Claude Neon got its name. So, pardon my ignorance, who or what is Claude Neon? (laughs) This was a company established in 1914, and uh, Claude Neon is the longest operating signage company in Australasia. Oh, well, I make a real point of ignoring billboards and advertising, so that's why I've never heard of them. Sorry, carry on, please, neon lights. <laughs> okay, so as I was saying before you interrupted, neon yeah, lights are only red, okay? So people will talk about neon lights being this, that, and the other colour. No, 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 they are only red. So how do we get neon lights and colours other than red then? And I'm thinking that Times Square, for instance, in New York, it's a multicoloured riot of neon lights. <laughs> well, not neon lights, really. You get it from the other gases. So um, hydrogen will give you a nice sort of purple. Helium gives you a nice yellow. Carbon dioxide, white. All the other elements give their own colours, and uh, this is what we see in so-called neon lights. And you, you, you said Times Square there, and that took me back to an anecdote from the wonderful Oliver Sacks in his truly brilliant book, Uncle Tungsten. If any of you have any interest in chemistry whatsoever, which you obviously do because you're listening to this, you really need to read his book, Uncle Tungsten. It's a fabulous, fabulous read. And he talks of himself in the post-war years as a 12-year-old walking through Piccadilly Circus with a pocket spectroscope and looking at all of the so-called neon lights there. And still being as thrilled doing that sort of 40, 50 years later when he walked through Times Square as a much older guy, again with a pocket spectroscope and just being wowed by all of these different coloured lights that he saw in his little spectroscope. Really, really nice story. It's a delightful story. I like Oliver Sacks. Yes. Shame he he died recently. I know. By by the way, how do neon lights actually work? (laughs) So a neon tube is a sealed glass tube and it's got metal electrodes at uh, either end, and it is filled with a particular gas at a very, very low pressure. Then what we do is we put a rather high potential of roughly several thousand volts across the electrodes, and what that does is to ionise the gas in the tube, and by ionise we mean it takes away electrons. When it does that, we get the emission of coloured light. And this is basically the same sort of thing that Ramsey and Travers used to isolate neon in the first place and, and show its amazing crimson glow. Ah, thanks. Of course, neon is useful for more than just bright red lights, eh? Oh, yes. So neon was instrumental in both, I guess, the realisation that elements could consist of more than one stable isotope 
And as a result of this, also the development of a thing called the mass spectrometer. Now, isotopes, mass spectrometers... What are these? Well, let's, let's discuss this uh, very briefly. We could talk all day about this. But in 1913, there was a guy by the name of J.J. Thompson, or in fact Sir J.J. Thompson, uh, as he was by then, and he was Ernest Rutherford's old boss, and he found evidence for the presence of two isotopes of neon, so neon-20 and neon-22. And the way he did that was by passing cathode rays obtained from neon using sort of the apparatus above, through a very strong magnetic field and these ions would bend in the presence of a magnetic field and this is the same principle as used in a mass spectrometer. So what's an isotope? An isotope is an atom of an element that has got the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons. I think we talked about them a long time ago. Yes. (laughs) As being like different flavours. Very, very probably, yes. So this was kind of interesting because there wasn't any evidence for stable isotopes back in those days uh, of J.J. Thompson. And so he thought that the experiment must be wrong or that the neon must be impure. So he ended up sort of purifying and purifying and purifying the neon. But uh, it always gave the same results. And then another colleague uh, of his by the name of Francis Aston sort of refined this method, and then as a result of this, he ended up with a Nobel Prize in chemistry from 1922 for the discovery of isotopes. A rather tragic aside to this, actually. So his family, uh, this is Aston's family, put his Nobel Medal up for sale in 2016. What? Um, I know, you, you look for this on the internet, it's, it's all over the internet, but what I can't find, unfortunately is what actually happened, whether it's sold or not. But certainly the auction house was putting a price of between two hundred to £400,000 on this. So Nobel medals are really uh, <laughs> very expensive beasties, I guess. It does seem a bit odd buying someone else's Nobel Prize medal rather than winning it. Well, it's the next best thing, I guess. You know, if you can't yeah. win it, buy it. And you would have thought the family should have been really proud of that prize-winning ancestor. Never yeah. mind. Any other uses for neon? Yes, like a few of the gases, we find uh, that neon is used in helium-neon lasers. It's also used as a low-temperature refrigerant and goes down to quite low temperature, around about minus 240 degrees. And at that temperature, it's in fact much more efficient on a volume basis than is helium, which we normally use as a refrigerant. And also for you, Alison, being a diver, it's also used as a diving gas, apparently because it's less soluble in bodily fluids than is helium. So you don't get the bends as easily, I guess. Oh, I think I just dive with compressed air, but I do dive with people who seem to have fancy mixes of all sorts of chemicals. <laughs> and apparently one of the good things about neon is that you don't get a funny voice, apparently. So <laughs> if, if that's important. Given, as I said at the start, that neon looks to be even less reactive than helium, so in other words, it's the least reactive of all the elements, some have suggested, in fact, that the periodic table needs to be redrawn so that helium should be in group 2 of the periodic table rather than group 18. It should be next door to hydrogen, and that would then make neon the first and most unreactive of the noble gases. Do you have an opinion on this, Professor? Um, I can see both sides of the argument, as I often do. (laughs) (laughs) What's today's interesting fact? Okay, I think this is kind of interesting. So neon has got the smallest temperature range at atmospheric pressure over which it exists as a liquid. So it goes from a solid to a liquid, and then from a liquid to a gas over a range of only 2.5 degrees Celsius. Amazing. 
Thanks, Alan. That was Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and the chemistry podcast Elemental. To listen to anything from tonight's show again and to see pictures of Gadget the Detector Dog, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can subscribe as a podcast, of course, in all the usual places. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well. Our handle is RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. But until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Moriora. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.